What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Both the boys and the girls were defining female satisfaction completely yes. incorrectly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, A, and the girls were doing it too because they were going back and saying, they weren't going back and saying, you know, oh, I had an orgasm or, you know, whatever. They were going back and saying he lasted, you know, however long and he had a big dick, you know, that that's not going to work. But also that it was really clear in the girl book that hookup culture was not serving girls very well for the most part. I mean, they, they, there were things that they liked about it, but mostly it was teaching them what they didn't want. And they had a lot of anger and a lot of betrayal about that. But what was interesting about the boys was that it wasn't serving them very well either. And they didn't mm-hmm. speak in terms of anger and betrayal so much, but they did speak in terms of disconnection. And, you know, as one guy said to me, it's like two people having very distinct experiences. You know, there's not a lot of eye contact. There's a lot of, not a lot of communication. It's like you're acting vulnerable without being vulnerable with somebody mm-hmm. that you don't know or care about very much. And he said that's, you know, just kind of odd and not really very fun. Therapist Uncensored brings you decades of experience with interpersonal psychotherapy, relational neuroscience, modern attachment, and anything else they think will be helpful in healing humans. Now, here are your co-hosts, Dr. Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. Hey, everyone. Welcome to our first episode of the new year. I know Sue and I are really ready to usher in 2021. And we imagine that's a pretty common sentiment for most of our listeners across the world. It was a tough one. And of course, it still is. But we are ready for the new year and ready to continue to take deep dives on so many topics. We wrapped up 2020 with a six-part series called Holding Your Own with Difficult Personalities. If you didn't get a chance to listen, I really encourage you to do so. And we really appreciate it. We got a lot of great feedback. Thank you. And I want to do a big shout out to our Patreons, because without our Patreons and all of their support, that series wouldn't have happened. So a big thank you. So, all right, now let's jump into today's episode. Our guest today is Peggy Orenstein. So Peggy is a really prolific author who has almost exclusively focused on girls and women throughout her career. And in one of her latest books, she interviewed girls and young women about their experience of developing sexuality and sex. And as she was traveling about discussing this book, inevitably, she was asked, but what about boys? And she realized she only had half the conversation. So she decided she needed to dive in and get their perspective. And as you will hear, she was really reticent about doing so and about interviewing boys because she anticipated, as we might all, that they wouldn't want to talk or it would be really difficult to get them to talk, especially to a middle-aged woman. However, she was actually blown away by how much the boys really wanted to talk and discovered how rarely they felt they were encouraged to talk in their own lives. Many of them could recount conversations about consent and no means no and about not taking advantage of girls. Important things, of course, but little had the opportunity to talk about what other things also deeply matter to them. So after interviewing over 100 boys and many experts, in today's episode... 
Peggy brings to us the behind the scenes with these boys and what she learned. Everything from the so-called locker room talk, their thoughts about pornography and consent, their experience of hookup culture and other insights about young male sexuality. So after this episode, don't be surprised if you really want to talk both your sons and your daughters into reading these books. I know I did. So let's jump in today with our interview with Peggy Ornstein. All right. Welcome, Peggy. Thank you so much for joining us on our show, Therapist Uncensored. It's such an honor to have you. Oh, I'm pleased to be here. So I'm curious. So you have done first quite a bit of interviewing research on girls and then most recently on boys and your recent book, Boys and Sex, has uh, proven to be a conversation starter and extremely enlightening. What group of boys did you use in this book? For the book, as with the girl book, I spoke with kids who were either in college or college bound. So that was the sort of demographic that I was looking at. Beyond that, it's a pretty broad range. There are different ethnicities. There are different sexual orientations. They come from all over the country, from big cities, from small towns. And I talked to over 100 guys and then, of course, delved deep into the research on boys and sex and love and masculinity and gender dynamics to sort of undergird all of that. And those guys were a really important bunch for me, in part because they did parallel the girls, but also what I tended to notice when I spoke to boys was that the more elite the boys' communities that I spoke in, the more they tended to disengage from ideas about sexual misconduct or bad behavior or other kinds of ideas that about masculinity. And to think that that was about other boys, that was about public school boys, that was about state school boys. And it was kind of an interesting dynamic to see how deep that sort of denial went in that community. So it almost as if they were maybe talking about it from an ethical standpoint at a distance, like boys over there rather than themselves. It was more like they believed that their superior SAT course mm. precluded certain kinds of behaviors rather than just better insulating them from the consequences of those behaviors. So even things like I was talking to some guys at an elite college in California, and I was hanging out at a freshman pregame party, as one does in middle age. And that's not awkward. (laughs) And I was just, I just wanted to get a kind of a scene for this chapter I was writing on hookups and sort of see what that vibe kind of was like among kids. But these guys that were there thought that I was, if I was writing on hookup culture, I must be interested in writing about assault. So they Mm -hmm. said, well, of course, you know, it's not guys like us who do that. It's those boys at the state schools because Brock Turner went to Stanford and their response was, well, yeah, but he wasn't there on merit. He was an athlete. (gasps) Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So it was interesting to sort of talk up the chain of college kids into those sort of more elite spaces to see how the guys were thinking about those issues. And what do you attribute that to, the difference? I don't know that I can say fully, but I think in general that young men want to deflect and deny the book isn't just about misconduct or misbehavior, but I think that they do tend to deflect and deny that among their peers, which is sort of natural. I mean, I, I talked to another guy, and this story actually didn't make it into the book because it sort of didn't play out. But I talked to a boy who told me that, you know, it wasn't his frat where that stuff happened. And I said, you know, okay, interesting. And we, we talked about that. And then a few weeks later, I talked to him again, and he said, you'll never guess what happened. 
right after I spoke with you, we had a party and one of our brothers hit a girl on the dance floor, got angry with her and just hit her. So they disaffiliated him. And then a couple of weeks later, it happened again with another guy. So then they were pretty upset. And then the sorority that they were often paired with, and they were what is called a sort of higher tier fraternity and sorority, the officers of the sorority came to them and read them a letter that contained all the issues that the girls had faced with the guys in that frat. And he was nearly in tears, he said, when he heard that, because he said, you just don't know. You just think that like, you know that some guys are maybe not the greatest towards women, but you don't really know what that means until Mm -hmm. somebody sits down and reads you a list of it. And he actually, to his credit, was trying to bring in programming, not only on assault prevention, but on positive sexual interaction into his fraternity and really try to change the culture there. And I was hoping to follow him as he did that. And the reason that he didn't end up in the book was that he was very excited about that, but his fraternity brothers just sort of said, uh, no, (laughs) that didn't get played out, unfortunately. Do you think he saw himself in any of the things that he was hearing from the women from the sorority, like maybe recognizing? I don't know. He didn't say that, but I do know that he was a guy who had had more education around those issues than a lot of the guys that I spoke with. And so Mm -hmm. he had the resources. He went back to a high school teacher and asked for resources and he did some things to bring programming in. And, you know, I did talk to him again a couple of years after that. And he had tried to bring programming in and he had had some success, but he didn't really, he had sort of drifted from frat life by then and he wasn't so sure that that had continued. And I went out with him and a friend while we were talking about this and just listening to them sort of work that out between themselves and sort of wrestle with what that meant was really interesting because we tend to, and this was definitely a big issue in boys and sex, we tend to talk about issues of misconduct or guys tend to as if only monsters assault and anyone who assaults then must be a monster. And that creates this kind of cognitive dissonance, right? So if you're a good guy and only monsters assault or commit misconduct, then whatever you have done couldn't possibly be that because then you wouldn't be a good guy. And that creates a real problem. And it allows things like there's research out of university of Michigan that shows that Young men, college men, do understand the definitions of consent, but when they were asked to describe their most recent sexual encounter in a hookup and in a relationship, when their actions didn't fit the definition, they expanded the definition rather than examine their actions. If you think of yourself as a good guy, you have to make your actions fit your definition. That maybe gives some insight. There was just a report out a couple months ago that showed that assault rates on college campuses haven't budged since all this consent education has been instituted in the last five years or so. And I think that that is part of the reason why that's true. And one of the points I think you take home is that there's not a lot of dialogue beyond the consent. Exactly. You know, I didn't really mean in this interview to launch right in there because usually I I wait because I don't want it to be only about that. And the thing that was the most clear in talking to boys, the two things that were the most clear, one was they were super eager to talk. You know, I thought it was going to be really a hard slog and that I was going to have a lot of transcripts of guys going, "Uh uh-huh, nope, you know, and that wasn't true at all. They were eager to talk. They were honest. They were blunt. And they were really insightful narrators of their experience. And 
I think that's because we so rarely ask boys to talk about their interior lives in a really open, honest way and give them the space for that. So they took it. And the other thing that was really clear was that nobody really did listen to them. Nobody ever did really ask them and that the adults in their lives were not talking to them despite all these new conversations about consent, despite the rise of porn and a sexualized media culture, nobody was talking to them about healthy sexuality, positive interaction, reciprocity, masculinity, gender dynamics, any of this. It was the first time they'd talked to anybody. So they were excited to be able to expand on it. And actually, were they wanting to learn? Did they have curiosity? Yeah, I mean, I approached them with a kind of openness and curiosity. And they were very curious about exploring their experience. And I felt when I wrote Girls and Sex, I actually had a harder time finding interview subjects. And with Boys and Sex, part of it, I think, was I was a known quantity. Part of it was that I had a better network at that point of teachers and and professors and such who could help me recruit. Also, when I would go out and speak about Girls and Sex, and I would mention that I was writing a book about boys, parents of boys I felt like boys were being flung at me. Like they would give me emails, they would give me cell numbers, you know, to text them. And I think that that was also because they were hoping that an interview would also be an information session for the boys mm-hmm. and give them the information and answer their questions in a way the parents didn't feel that they had been able to do. I can relate to that as a parent of both girls and boys, adolescents. I can really relate to that, that desire for the the boys to get extra education and to really be exposed. And honestly, some of just reading your books as a parent, I feel fairly well informed and comfortable talking about sexuality with both. I was really taken back by some of what I read in the things that I wasn't covering, you know, like your emphasis, like with boys, a lot of times it was more about the fear culture. It was like, are you being careful? Are you getting consent? And it was more from a guarded perspective, not an opening perspective. Right. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think what boys would say that parents tended to talk about was they tended to say, don't get anybody pregnant, practice Mm -hmm. contraception, don't get a disease, you know, use a condom. And then everything else was supposed to be covered by respect women. You know, one guy said to me, what is that supposed to mean? You know, that's like telling somebody don't run over any little old ladies and then handing them the keys to the car. I mean, you never think you're going to run over a little old lady, but you still don't know how to drive. And what does respect mean? Once you're past the idea of consent, first of all, what does respect mean and having to open it up and trying to help the boys open up to more of an emotional connection to themselves about what sexuality means for them? Yeah, that was huge. I mean, the whole first chapter of Boys and Sex is about the ideas about masculinity. And it becomes really clear early on that they still carry a very strong feeling that masculinity involves emotional suppression mm-hmm. and involves disconnection from your emotional accessibility and vulnerability. So they would talk a lot about training, you know, they would say, I trained myself not to feel, or mm-hmm. I built a wall inside of me. And the only mm-hmm. things that I'm allowed to show are happiness and anger. As a therapist, you know, that when somebody can't access their feelings, when they can't be emotionally vulnerable, they can't express their humanity and they they get into trouble. And what's more, Brene Brown always says that emotional vulnerability is the secret sauce to maintaining a relationship. So when we cut boys off from their capacity to feel and their capacity to feel and express vulnerability, 
we cut them off from the very thing we want for them in terms of creating mutually gratifying, personally fulfilling relationships. And sexual relationships. You know, when you cut them off from the, the idea of vulnerability in the idea of sexual desire and sexual exploration of their partner and of what their sexuality is for them. There's so much vulnerability in that that can just enhance sexuality so much rather than it be so much focus on conquest. Well, and yes, and that's the other piece of the masculinity bit, right? That it's about conquest and it's about treating partners as disposable and bragging about it. And it was interesting when I, when I look back at the book at, kind of after it was done, I realized how often the conclusion of a chapter or a conclusion of a particular boy's story was the recognition of the importance of vulnerability. And I mean, it was pretty fascinating and pretty consistent. And this was regardless of sexual orientation or gender identity or ethnicity or anything. This was a real commonality that they would say things like, there was a boy who his story is in the chapter on pornography and he's a pretty heavy porn user and his expectations are really shaped by that. And then he finally, I say to him, well, when did you have intercourse for the first time at a certain point? And he, he said, uh, and he looked like he was trying to remember and he's kind of squinching up his eyes. And then he said, Friday. And I said, wait, you mean like five days ago? And he said, yes. And he, he was a college freshman, I think at that time. He told me a story about getting together with this girl. It was supposed to be a casual hookup. Things didn't work. He couldn't get an erection. They got together again. Again, he couldn't get an erection. The third time they got together, things weren't working out. And she asked him if it was his first time. And he admitted it was. And she said, well, what did you want your first time to be like? And they ended up talking for, you know, a couple of hours. It wasn't like they talked forever or knew each other super well. But they talked about their hopes, their fears, their desires, you know, his anxiety, all this kind of stuff. And he said, and then like, magically, it worked. Like, what a surprise. And he said, and I learned, I said, so what did you realize? And he said, well, I learned that if I'm not emotionally vulnerable with a person, I can't be physically vulnerable with them either because the body's a vulnerable thing. And, you know, you can't learn that from a screen. So that kind of story happened a lot. Wow. I love hearing that. It seems like the process of talking with you and you're talking about the excitement that got to unfold and unfold and unfold more and discover so much about themselves in the process just so highlights the importance of having these dialogues over a period of time so that they get to unfold it for themselves and get in touch with it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it was, would say all the time, I never said anything like this before. I've never had a conversation like this before. You know, it was cathartic. It was therapeutic all of that. And even things within, you know, the the reporting itself, there's one scene where I'm talking to a guy on Skype who had described himself at one point as a feminist fuck boy, which meant that he was very conscious of consent and egalitarian, but also treated his partners kind of as disposable and was not above taking Mm. advantage of the skewed gender ratio on campus that advantaged guys and allowed them to call the shots of the sexual culture. And he was kind of reckoning with that. And we were talking about it And this was, you know, we'd been talking for about a year at this point. And another boy texted in just by chance. And he was looking at colleges where he'd been admitted. He was a senior. And he was texting me and saying, you know, WTF with hookup culture. It's like an orgy down here. Am I supposed to just go to Bone Town and forget about the emotional connection? Or am I supposed to worry about that later? You know, I don't know what to do. And he was somebody who really did prize and value connection. So I read that text to the boy I was interviewing on Skype and said, what's your advice? And they had this conversation through me about 
you know, being your authentic self and the reality versus the myth of hookup culture and all this stuff. And then the boy texted me, thank you so much. That was just what I needed to hear and sent me a little heart emoji. And I thought, wow, they're strangers. I'm a stranger really to them. But what would it mean if boys could have those honest conversations for real with the guys in their lives or the adults in their lives? How would that change and shape the way that they went forward? Oh, yeah, that is, I love that story. Did they end up actually talking together? It was mainly text through you? It was through me. They never spoke. But I know because I stay in touch with the boy who texted, the, the younger boy, that that conversation meant a lot to him. And that when he did decide to go to college and went off to college, that it was something that helped him retain his own beliefs and desires and integrity as he went into the social life there. I could see how easy it would have been for him to have that conversation with a bunch of his peers and having him, you know, receive all sorts of looks like he was crazy and what are you thinking and why wouldn't you go for it? And kind of like this sort of conquest approach where he would feel pressure and not even maybe tune in to, yeah, and that he was able to tune into his anxiety about it and like, what's the thing to do here? I love that. Yeah, it was pretty great. It was an amazing experience. Sounds like it. From all your research, what are some of maybe the primary things that you feel like you could summarize that you learned from talking to all these boys? Like maybe just a few kind of parents out there listening. What are the boys saying? What did you learn? And Well, you know, we talked about things like hookup culture and, and where they stood in that. We talked a lot about those issues around locker room culture. That was a big issue. And that's been a big issue in, in the public. Yes realm. And the guys that I was talking with, I think what was really interesting about talking to them at this moment in history was that they were living in a new time. And they, were re- they weren't just these blank slates. They were wrestling with what it meant to live in this new time. So one of the areas was, was where locker room culture was concerned. You know, what do guys do? They say they bang, they hammer, they pound, they nail, they pipe that, they tap that. You know, it's, it, well, it sounds like they went to a construction site. Yeah. But it's this kind of weaponized language that is about asserting heterosexuality and Mm -hmm. bonding as heterosexual men through the control of women's bodies. And there were guys that I talked to who could see that and weren't happy about it, but standing up to that, you know, how do they stand up to that? So one of the guys said he and a friend tried to say something when an older boy was said something despicable about some girl and they got shot down. Mm -hmm. And the next time he didn't say anything and his friend did. And he said the more he watched as his friends stepped up and he stepped back, the more this other boy, the other guys didn't seem to like him anymore. And they stopped listening to him and he lost his social capital. And the boy I was talking to said, and I was sitting there with buckets of social capital left and not spending any of it. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, you know, like, what do I do? I don't want to have to choose between my dignity and these guys, but how do I make it so I don't have to choose? And I thought so much about that because Michael Thompson, the psychologist, talks about how it's silence in the face of misogyny and cruelty in which in that silence that boys become men. And Mm -hmm. so thinking about what they, not only what they said, but what they didn't say, what they couldn't say, what they wouldn't say was so very important. And that's one of the things that as I've been out on the road, young men will ask me about, like, you know, I had a division one athlete come up to me and say, I'm not happy about that locker room talk. How do I intervene? What do I say? You know, he said it's, it's complicated because then you're going out on the field and you're supposed to play as a unit. So you don't want to fracture that unit. So what right. do you do? 
you know, those conversations that we need to be having with young men, how they can create a larger community where they can change the social norms is super important. So that was one thing. So how do they stay in connection with them, be able to have their opinion and not detach in fear of being shamed or ridiculed? And then calling out somebody else is going to create shame. And so it really creates a challenge to be able to do that and not fracture. So how do we as adults create that environment for them, help them create that environment for themselves? You know, what do we need to do? How do we need to talk to our boys as parents, as educators, as coaches in order to create that kind of environment? And there are, I mean, there are people who are doing that. There's mm-hmm. an organization called Coaching Boys into Men that uses the, the social power of coaches to really change that locker room environment and rewrite the script for boys. And they've had tremendous success with both mm-hmm. high school and middle school boys. So that, you know, I think those all-male crucibles can be smoke screens for the worst kind of bro culture, or, you know, maybe they can be leveraged as crucibles of change. Absolutely. Coaches are amazing in that and being able to that influence if they were to take it in the right direction. So what would you recommend if you were just speaking to teenage boys right now that were listening and not the parents and not the coaches? What's the two or three things you would tell that one boy who came to you? So what do I do? Well, I told him a lot of things. I mean, I, I had him email me. If they have a coach who's who they think would be amenable to talk, because it, it is something that the environment of a, of a locker room is something that the coaches do establish, whether actively or passively. So is the coach somebody who would hear that and bring in that kind of programming? If that's not the case, well, okay, are there guys on your team who are on your team, you know, who, mm-hmm. who you know or you think would be open to talking about what you're seeing and changing the culture through, you know, various kinds of social norming by not just not listening or by not laughing by kind of wincing or are there small ways? Are there ways if the, if it's a particular person and you're friendly with that person to take them aside in a time that's neutral and not in front mm-hmm. of others and say that what you're saying, I have a problem with that. And, you know, inevitably the guy will probably say something like, Hey, you want me to get you a tampon? You know what? Yeah. You know, and you, and what do you do then? Well, you say, you reiterate what, you know, yeah, you can make fun of me, but this is what I think. I want you to know it. I don't like it. And then, you know, let's go back to playing video games. But it's partly learning how to communicate and navigate conflict. And there's all kinds of programming that you could bring in, too, for boys and young men that can change that culture or at least give some power to the many, many boys in those situations that don't feel they can speak out. Because what I was seeing a lot of were guys that were dropping out of, say, sports that they loved Mm -hmm. because they didn't like that culture. And that was really kind of a sad thing. Or losing friendships. I know that our our boys have been challenged at times in friendships when they are confrontational and really speaking up. And they've been able to sort of take a side and kind of, I mean, take the friends aside at times and that's worked. But it's a real challenge. But a challenge is not a reason not to be a little brave. I'm agreeing with you. I'm going to put a little unexpected plug for your other book at this one moment, because the book that you wrote about girls and, and sex, one of the readers, several of the readers in our community have been the boys, adolescent boys. And I asked one of the boys, you know, what's your take on this book? And I was going to read you his response. I'm going to read it right here because it's really relaxed. He says, when I first read this book, and this is the, the book on girls, I was a freshman in high school. And though I call myself a feminist, like most boys at that age, I was pretty ignorant to how bad things were for girls, especially women. 
not just in terms of the world of sex, but also in general. This book is really what got me to care about and be active. And then before giving this book a second read, I always felt whenever friends of mine would say things that were, quote, off color, and at worst, blatant sexist, I didn't know how to stand up for what I believed, even though I knew I didn't like what they said. But he feels that the book really laid a groundwork for how to do so sort of logic and reason and the perspective of the girl. So he was saying just not necessarily confrontational of the boy, but giving the perspective of the girl helped them kind of connect more rather than it just be a challenge. I love hearing that. You know, the the books are called Boys and Sex and Girls and Sex, but that doesn't mean that that's who they're for. Right. (laughs) I get a lot of girls who are reading the boy book and boys who are reading the girl book. And I think that that's fantastic because it reminds me of there's a scene in the boy book where I'm sitting with a group of kids it's really the only interview I did that was co-ed the day after after I went to that freshman pregame then the next day I came back and interviewed them as a group boys and girls and they were so surprised by so many of one another's responses when we were talking about hookup culture we were talking about the night before we were talking about you know how they feel in the room when they're with somebody and when we were finished they said can we do this again next week I said, well, yeah, but I'm not going to be here because, you know, I'm a grown up and I don't live in the dorm. But sure, go ahead, you know. But it spoke to me again about how much they want to get the perspective. And what I hope with boys and sex was first line was wanting parents to see how boys were thinking about these various issues. And then beyond that, I wanted boys themselves to feel seen mm-hmm. and feel like their voices were surfaced and reflected so that they could read that and think about maybe, you know, getting beyond the guy talk and deepening their dialogue with other guys, or at least deepening their perspective in their own heads and hearts. Thirdly, I thought, hey, if I was a girl, a heterosexual girl, particularly, I would have loved to have been able to read a book like this and better understand what was going on in the heads of the guys that I was encountering. It would be so useful to just say, oh, that's happening. That's because of this bit of socialization. And, you know, you can either confront it or decide to ignore it or whatever, but at least you can understand it. Well, understand it and realize it, not take it at face value, not taking the assumptions that that girls or even women can make about what the desire is for the boys and men. Right. Right. Or even their attitude towards you. There was one piece of the book that I found. So, you know, each book has a chapter about hookup culture. I mean, a hookup is a casual interaction. You don't know what it means. It could mean kissing. It could mean groping. It could mean oral sex could mean, you don't know what it is. But a hookup culture is the idea that casual sex is supposed to proceed rather than derive from emotional intimacy. And that it's the normalized path into a relationship, even though most hookups don't lead to relationships. And that's on 90% of college campuses, kids say that they're in a hookup culture. So there was discussion in both books of what that is. And one of the things that was really clear in the girl book was that guys were not very concerned about female orgasm in hookups. The orgasm gap is enormous. You know, if it happens, it's not a bad thing, but it's not the reason people are there. So you're saying that girls had this perspective or that was the outcome that in their hookup culture? That was happening. That was for sure. And guys would say like in a hookup, I don't really care. It's, I know it sounds bad, but I don't really care. And the orgasm gap in a hookup is, I can't remember the exact number now, but it's, it's gigantic. In a relationship, it's smaller. And some of that is about 
familiarity. Some of it is about practice. Some of it is about trust. But some of it is also that it's an unconscious way that guys signal the value of their partner. That mm-hmm. when they, you know, don't care about orgasm, when they don't care or won't do the activities that would produce it, they're signaling how they feel in that moment. So there's that. But what was interesting to me, so I knew all that from the girl book. But what was interesting in going to the boy book was their misconceptions about female pleasure and satisfaction were so extreme and they did care about female satisfaction in a hookup. They just didn't define it through orgasm or even really physical pleasure. How they defined it was in relationship to their stamina in intercourse and to a lesser extent penis size. And that's because in a hookup, how good can the sex be if you're drunk and you don't know each other very well, you know, but it's all about the invisible audience. It's all about the story that you're going to be telling your friends when you leave that room. And so as part of that story, boys worried about what girls were going to say to their friends about them in this regard. So one guy said to me that he got in the habit of looking at the clock during the hookup before intercourse started so that he could see how long he lasted and make sure it was sufficient. And he said, he knew, he said, it isn't really even about the girl's pleasure. It's about your own ego. And Mm -hmm. knowing that when she goes back to her friends, she won't say she was disappointed in your performance and that you'll be okay with that. And he said, it turns sex into a task. He's one that I enjoyed to a certain extent, but I wasn't really in the moment. And I just thought it was so fascinating because first of all, and that means everybody, both the boys and the girls, were defining female satisfaction completely yes. incorrectly. <laughs> you know, A, and the girls were doing it too because they were going back and saying, they weren't going back and saying, you know, oh, I had an orgasm or, you know, whatever. They were going back and saying he lasted, you know, however long and he had a big dick, you know, that that's not going to work. But also that it was really clear in the girl book that hookup culture was not serving girls very well for the most part. I mean, they, they, there were things that they liked about it, but mostly it was teaching them what they didn't want. And they had a lot of anger and a lot of betrayal about that. But what was interesting about the boys was that it wasn't serving them very well either. And they didn't mm-hmm. speak in terms of anger and betrayal so much, but they did speak in terms of disconnection. And, you know, as one guy said to me, it's like two people having very distinct experiences. You know, there's not a lot of eye contact. There's a lot of, not a lot of communication it's like you're acting vulnerable without being vulnerable with somebody that you don't know or care about very much. And he said, that's, you know, just kind of odd and not really very fun. When you say that their interests, it reminds me just how boys are culturized just in general about their identity being so outwardly dependent on achievement and somebody else's response to them and how that promotes a disconnection, even from sexual satisfaction. So maybe they had an amazing orgasm, maybe they didn't, but their distraction of somebody else's perspective of their achievement, of their physical prowess, like of judgment, you know, and how much they're influenced by other people's judgment, which keeps them from being inside themselves. And for girls too, the hookup culture is a competitive culture. Guys are competing with guys. Girls are competing with girls. And it's Mm -hmm. about hotness and it's about, you know, who you can say you hooked up with. And it's all about the story. But it's Mm -hmm. it's a kind of adversarial competitive culture that, again, you know, the guys, it's not that all men are this way, but the values that it is working with are the values that we tend to ascribe to men more mm-hmm. of, 
disconnection of competition of sexist status seeking and conquest. So that could mask for guys how it wasn't serving them and their own mm-hmm. confusion about right. why it wasn't serving them. Right. Thinking about also like what you've been talking about, about how to educate boys about this and how we so often then still come to them when we're educating them about how to respect women. It's still sort of how to act on the other to be perceived. You know, it's not necessarily about how to get inside themselves and what sexuality can mean. And I love one of the quotes that you said, I don't have it in front of me, but you were talking about the hookup culture and just in general, how it's an avoidance the hookup culture being centered right now, or maybe an outcome of this day and age, it seems like the idea of being awkward, you know, of having an awkwardness, and that the hookup culture just bypasses that. Right. You know, what I always think about, what kids would talk about was that you don't want to catch feelings. Like, you know, you don't catch chlamydia, you don't catch gonorrhea, you don't catch feelings. And so to avoid catching chlamydia or gonorrhea, you put on a condom, right? right. To avoid catching feelings, you put on your emotional condom and that emotional condom is made of alcohol. So alcohol is not just the lubricant of hookup culture. Hookup culture is dependent upon it. And there's a great book by Lisa Wade, who's a sociologist at Occidental called American Hookup, where she says it creates the compulsory carelessness mm-hmm. necessary for a hookup. And I love that. And when we talk about alcohol, you know, we, we've focused a lot on girls and the danger to girls of drinking and how, you know, drink for drink, they get drunker than boys and, because our bodies metabolize alcohol differently and that it impairs their judgment and puts them at risk. But, you know, we talk a lot less about the impact of alcohol on boys' behavior and how it reduces their ability to hear no. It reduces their ability to hear a partner's hesitation or notice a partner's hesitation. It increases aggression and makes them less likely to step in as bystanders. So there are ways that when boys drink, it puts them at risk of harming somebody and of, mm-hmm. you know, of course, and having to face the consequences of that harm and of not believing they've done it when they have. So I yeah. think that we have to talk a lot more about how that works with boys. Well, speaking of that, what would you say for parents out there? What are the kind of things that if you could say, these are just the five essential things when you're thinking about or just the things I really want you to think about when you're raising boys, how to talk to them and what to talk about? What would you say? Well, you know, it depends on the age of your child and so many things that it's hard for me to do that. But what I did do is in the last chapter of Boys and Sex, I did something that I've never really done before. And usually when I write a book, because I'm a journalist, I like to show and not tell because that's like what you learn in, you know, writing 101. And so I tend to take people into a classroom or profile somebody or do something that shows what would work. And I just kept trying to do that and it didn't work. So Mm -hmm. I actually decided that it was because I had spent nine years writing about kids and sexuality and I needed to step out from behind the reporter's notebook. In the last chapter, I can't give you a script because everybody has a different kid. Your kids are different ages. They're different gender identities. They're different sexual orientations. They're different ethnicities. And you need to factor all that in when you're developing the scaffolding that you need to, to have those conversations. But I could offer you a template. And I did try to put together a set of the kinds of conversations that we need to be having with young men and many of them with young women too, whether it's conversations that promote connection and Mm -hmm. keep boys connected to compassion and empathy, whether it's conversations that are about consent, 
but not just about consent, whether it's conversations that encompass, you know, talking about sexual pleasure and reciprocity, conversations about porn. And in this day and age, to not be giving your child a lens through which to resist the more harmful messages of both mainstream media and pornography is to do a disservice to your child. We don't have the luxury of not doing that anymore. It's just too prevalent and too young Mm -hmm. that they're seeing Mm -hmm. that stuff. So having those conversations, having conversations about what constitutes a positive, reciprocal, mutually gratifying, personally fulfilling relationship. You know, one person I talked to about this, Andrew Smiler, who's a psychologist who works with boys, said, you might want to say, you know, if you're willing to be really pointed with your teenage son, talk about the context of the orgasm. Like, what, you know, do you want to just have an orgasm? Do you want your orgasm to be just about like masturbating into another person? Or do you want it to be more than that? And what does that look like? And what does that mean? And I know that a lot of these conversations, they're not conversations our parents had with us. They're not conversations that any adult had with us. And maybe they're not conversations that we can even have with our own partners. Mm-hmm. But it's an opportunity to do things better. Mm-hmm. And to, you know, for us as, as adults to take a little step forward. And just like we are trying to examine so many other aspects of the way we were raised or the way we were socialized or what we need to do to create better gender dynamics and gender interactions in this world, this is another place where we can do that. This is another place where we can think about how to create healthier kids, better citizens, more connected individuals, if we're willing to take the risk and leap and and start thinking about that. Mm -hmm. It strikes me kind of relatedly to come back to what we were talking about earlier some of these guys really wanting to talk about the emotional impact, but also talking about the female pleasure. It almost would seem like you were encouraged. I can see parents feeling like they were encouraging sexuality or hypersexuality by talking about the pleasure of the other person. The thing that doesn't make any sense is that on one hand, our kids are absolutely steeped in sexualized media that is bombarding Mm. them with inaccurate, inappropriate ideas about male sexual entitlement, female sexual availability, detached sex, just behaviors that are not going to serve them. Plus, on top of that, a porn culture that is unprecedented. And we think that if we then just stay silent about realities, it's going to be fine. That doesn't make sense. We don't have the luxury. I don't think things were ever so great when we were young, but we don't have the luxury of that kind of silence that our parents did. We don't mm-hmm. have it anymore because it's, mm-hmm. it's, as somebody just said to me recently, it's going to be you or it's going mm-hmm. to be you porn. You can make the decision about who's going to educate your kid. And all the research says two things. One is that they want us to talk to them, even though it, they plug their ears and hum, and that those conversations have actually more impact on boys than they do on girls even. And two is that all the research shows that talking to kids, having pleasure-based sex education does not mean that they engage in sexual behavior earlier. And we know, for instance, that abstinence-only education does not change when young people engage in sexual behavior, or it delays it by maybe some months. It reduces the use of contraception, reduces the use of disease protection, more pregnancy, more disease. And what's more, there was research that found the only program that has been shown, this is working with girls, but the only program that has been shown to reduce rates of assault in terms of what girls can do And, you know, we need to be talking about boys in that regard. But in terms of girls, showed that adding pleasure-based sex Mm -hmm. education to a program that emphasized refusal skills 
greatly enhanced and uh, girls' understanding and reduced their experience of sexual violence and sexual assault after that. So pleasure-based education actually reduced assault rates. And that's because for the girls, when they can distinguish more between what feels good and what doesn't, what they want and what they don't want, they can see at a much lower level when something is coercive or against what they want. Because rather than saying, oh, gee, you know, I guess maybe that's okay because he wants to do that. I don't know. Maybe I should want it too. They say, "Uh -uh. (laughs) uh-uh, that's not what I want. And they get out of there quicker. It's not only good for the positive relationships that they have, it reduces traumatic relationships to add pleasure-based education to kids' sex ed. Uh, I love that. You're speaking our language. And also, it, it turns them inward, right? So instead, you mentioned that girls often are reporting that they're looking to the male's satisfaction rather than their own body. So just to slow down and go, what is the pleasure? What is they want? Right there, they're actually in more internally focused on their own experience, which adds to their own sense of security in themselves and awareness of self. And I'm thinking about the boys too. You mentioned the hookup culture and the feminist fuck boy who approaches it from a disposable perspective and thinking, but if I have consent, what's the problem, right? As long as there's consent, and that's what we're talking about, I'm a good guy and I'm matching and they want it, but it having... just makes it legal. Yes. Um, Shafia Zaloum, who is this wonderful health educator in San Francisco and wrote one of my favorite books that I think is a great one for parents and teenagers called Sex, Teens, and Everything in Between. She says that sex should be legal, ethical, and good. That's mm-hmm. the long game. Yeah, because you get beyond just the consent to have the boy going, oh, what was the girl's pleasure? What turns them on? What do they think? Right then they have to slow their own self-pleasure down. They have to, I mean, they have to slow their own achievement-oriented concept. I was going to say one of the models that I found in terms of navigating that was with gay guys, you know, which is not to say that everything's perfect or that there's never assault or never coercion or anything like that. But as a whole, we're much better able to navigate and negotiate the parameters of a sexual experience because they kind of had to be because what was going to happen and who was going to do what with whom and how not always so obvious. So that was really interesting. And, and it was, you know, one of the boys said to me, I don't get the resistance of heterosexual guys to the consent conversation. Cause when we're talking about that, that means we're going to have sex, you know, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> But Dan Savage, who is a sex columnist in Seattle, he calls it the four magic words that gay guys will ask before any sexual encounter, which are, what are you into? Mm. And that is exactly the kind of open-ended question that allows you to build a sexual experience that would be, you know, collaborative and mutual and reciprocal and good for everybody involved, rather than we so often think of consent in a heterosexual context as being a series of pre-prescribed questions that, you know, a guy is asking a girl and she's saying yes or no to. And that's really not it. And that said, I realized that if you transferred that to a heterosexual context into a room with a young man and a young woman, and he said, what are you into? She might very well say, I have no idea. Right. Because of the way girls are socialized, right? And that lays bare so many dynamics, gender dynamics that make it hard for young people to engage in the kinds of encounters or relationships that we want them to. And it's why it's not just about sex. It's not just about reproduction. It's not just about biology. It's also about making gender dynamics visible to both 
guys and girls so that they can, you know, have a broader perspective and maybe resist or transcend some of those really deeply entrenched ideas that we never really examine at all. In any of your interviewing, did you interview, you were speaking about the difference between gay men and straight men or straight boys, I should say, turning into men. Did you find any interviews and any outcomes for maybe non-binary Yeah, um, I talked not so much with non-binary, but I talked to trans boys. As one of them said to me very clearly, trans boys are not sent down as angels from heaven to make masculinity better. That is not Mm -hmm. our job. Mm -hmm. And absolutely so, you know, absolutely so. And that said, some of them really were both, you know, questioning these ideas and also pushing the cis guys in their midst question what constituted masculinity as well in a really interesting way. So one of the guys in particular, and I didn't really recognize this until after the book was published, and I, and I was thinking sort of more about him and rereading his story, and I thought, he uses this phrase a lot that I hadn't really noticed, but was so crucial, which was he kept saying things like, well, you know, but I realized that was not my masculinity. Or, you know, and I thought, that's my masculinity. Like it was a like a buffet that he was choosing for to construct this identity, which is exactly what he was doing. And I thought, wow, they didn't, not all trans guys, it was very specific to this one boy, but I thought, what an interesting way of looking at that to say, you know, that over there, nah, that's not going to be my masculinity. But this over here, I like this. This can be my masculinity. I'm going to integrate this. Yeah. So that, that really gave me kind of a different perspective. The other question that we don't often discuss with trans guys is how do you derive sexual pleasure and satisfaction from the parts of your body when the parts of your body that would presumably be generating that are the parts that you feel dysphoria towards? And so a lot of that story was sort of wrestling with that journey. For mm-hmm. some of those boys, which, you know, not obviously uniformly, but for the guys that I was talking to. So is there anything that surprised you that stood out that when you after you did the, the interviewing with the girls and then you started interviewing the boys? Is there anything that was just completely surprising to you? A story towards the end about a restorative justice case. I really struggled with how to add something productive to the conversation around sexual assault on, and misconduct on college campuses high school campuses. And I tried a bunch of different things and they didn't work. And then I found these two people, Anman and Samir, who had been through a restorative justice process after he assaulted her. And it was a really hopeful and positive and exciting story that offered a path besides or beyond punishment that worked more towards understanding, healing, justice, and accountability. That's what restorative justice aims for when somebody is willing to take accountability. I mean, if he's just going to say, I didn't do that, then you can't do that. Because a lot of times, you know, let's just say it's a girl who's been harmed in a sexual way, does not necessarily want to, she might want to have the guy expelled or suspended or jailed. Mm -hmm. But a lot of times, especially if it's in a friend group, what they want is to be understood, to be heard, to have the person take responsibility for their actions and recognize what they've done and Mm -hmm. to never do it again. So this offered a kind of alternative pathway to that. And it also, in the process, really transformed this young man. It's a kind of twist on he said, she said, so that she's 
it goes back and forth between both of them and their understanding of what happened and their, you know, going apart and then eventually coming together in this process. And, you know, he thinks he's had a bad hookup. He's tried to be a teacher and a nice guy and help her learn how to, you know, engage in, in sexual behavior. She says he held her head down and wouldn't let her get up and forced her to have oral mm. sex with him. You know, she was assaulted. And so it's the process through which she decides what she wants to do about that. But also he is coming to terms with first not thinking he did anything, then recognizing that he had, then falling apart because what does that make him as a human being, then trying to pick himself back up and thinking about what it would truly mean to take personal accountability for that. Well, that also kind of gets you into the point of not doing the division between the good guy monster. If you think only monsters do that, you stay in a defense. If you go, I'm a good guy that really messed up and I'm going to have some insight into this, it's going to be much easier for him to engage in the restorative aspects of it instead of just defend and kind of integrate it that people are going to make mistakes and read things wrong, especially if alcohol, like you mentioned before, is involved. Right. And this is another set of gender dynamics that needs to be made visible for boys is their tendency to, you know, we talk about miscommunication, but I always want to be careful with that term because, you know, that almost indicates that if somebody just communicated better, the other person wouldn't have done what they did. And I don't think that's true. And I think what we do have is a problem with false assumption and the Mm -hmm. way that guys are socialized encourages them to believe that they control the narrative and it encourages them to put their pleasure before a woman's feelings And again, to see whatever they did as not possibly being assault because they're a good guy and good guys don't assault. And to, you know, on a kind of more mundane level, young men tend to, or not just young men, men tend to see, especially when drunk, any act of friendliness on the part of a woman as indicating Mm -hmm. that she wants to have sex with him. They tend to see consent to one act, like kissing or even oral sex as consent to intercourse. They tend to see the place where you have sex. So there's a disparity between guys who believe, college guys who believe that if somebody asks you back to their room, that they are consenting to intercourse and girls who believe that there's like a 25% disparity. And in that disparity, assault can happen because people are making assumptions that they shouldn't be making. And in all of the kind of me too allegations, because of that, I thought the really, one of the really interesting ones to me was the Aziz Ansari story which I think was irresponsibly reported that he didn't do anything that was illegal, but what he did was so ordinary, you know, and Mm -hmm. it laid bare the most ordinary kinds of power dynamics between women and men where she just keeps staying and trying to make it okay for her and trying to be pleasing. And he keeps, you know, he's just like a good guy Mm -hmm. who's over eager and sees a woman's limits as a challenge that he's supposed to overcome and that he gets to control that narrative, that he's seeing her behavior filtered through the lens of his own desires. I love the education that you're doing because it's a topic, it's opening a dialogue that needs to be busted open. I mean, I know the Me Too movement has been there, but the topic of really talking about desire and pleasure and affirmative consent, not just consent, but not no means no, but you need an affirmative, yes, I want this, and this is what I want, that it's not just given at the beginning, but that it's checked into, and it's about... Going, yeah. Yes. And, and how do you do that? You know, how do we talk to it? Because we didn't learn that either. No. Really thinking about, you know, what that looks like and what that means and what that sounds like. Even if, I mean, it can be just a really little thing. It can be, you good? How's this going? I mean, you okay, even. Anything. Just some kind of, you know, check-in. It doesn't have to be like, you know, a document that you're 
explaining. And that's the lie of that whole argument, you know, that that's the case. And that's why I think, again, that the gay guys are a really great model of that because mm-hmm. they do show how it can be done in a way that is real and authentic. Well, and also seeking out the education. You know, I just going to add that is that it's not, it's just checking. It's also seeking out the education of what is going on for women or girls and what is going on for boys that you don't get to just say, but she said, but she did, but understanding what connection between two humans are about and that she could be, have fears or feel pressured or be scared to be the girl that doesn't. And there's always opportunities when you're a parent. There's always stuff going on in the news. You know, there's always stuff going on in the news. There's always a time when you can have that conversation or you can do things like have, I mean, this is again, going more to assault, but having your son listen to Chanel Miller's, the girl who was assaulted by Brock Turner, her statement that she made in court, which she reads, you can get it on YouTube, is astonishing. Having them listen to the apology that Dan Harmon, who is like a showrunner on TV shows like Rick and Morty and Community that a lot of guys watch, did a, his podcast and really reckoned with the fact that he had sexually harassed a peer and had been in denial of that and apologized. And it's a model for dealing with that. I mean, I think that those things surface those dynamics in ways that boys can't deny or deflect. So that's great. But again, that's not all of it. You also have to talk about the what's positive, what's pro-social, what's good behavior, what we don't, you know, why don't we talk about female pleasure? Why don't you ever see images of, well, now you do a little more, but we don't see a lot of images of girls or talk a lot about girls and masturbation, but like guys, masturbation is everywhere. They draw penises on everything, you know, what's that about? You know, like just having those kinds of conversations, whether it's you having them or whether it's your cool aunt or your cool uncle or your gay best friend or whoever is doing it, somebody needs to be having these conversations with boys. I agree. Thank you so much. I could talk to you all night, but I really appreciate you taking the time to be on. Thank you. I appreciate that. And this is really great. Thank you. You take care. All right. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Like I said, I could continue to talk to Peggy for a long time and to dive into so many more perspectives. I really knowing and helping both boys and girls learn to talk through sexuality and their developing selves is so essential to our development of deepening security. So thanks for listening. If you found this episode interesting, please pass it on, rate and review us. And if you so Uh, have the opportunity to become a Patreon member and help support our show. Sue and I continue to want to try to do the show as long as possible, ad-free. We would really appreciate it. You just go to patreon.com, Therapist Uncensored. All right. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you around the bed. Therapist Uncensored is Ann Kelly and Sue Marriott. This podcast is edited by Jack Anderson.
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.